Welcome to Upfront on the Voice of America. My name is Jackson Vongani. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, experts say that one of the most pressing issues during times of crisis, like war, like famine, and all other types of uh, conflict, is the disruption of education systems. You know, schools may close, traditional modes of uh, learning become difficult to sustain, uh, displaced youth face immense challenges in accessing educational resources and the already marginalized often bear the brunt of these disruptions which exacerbates existing inequalities. A new report recently written by uh, Mark Summers and his team uh, talks about some of these issues and how it can be fixed. Mark joins me in studio today. Mark, thank you so much for coming to visit us again. It's good to see you. Nice to see you. Thank so you. tell me about this report, uh, Lost Opportunity. So Lost Opportunity, edu uh, Education for Out-of-School Youth in Emergency and Protracted Crisis Settings. That's the title. Um, it is about this situation where there's a quarter of a billion children and youth who are not in school in today's world. Um, 127 million of them are uh, in crisis-affected uh, countries. And so you have huge numbers of primary school and secondary school age young people who can't go to school. Mm -hmm. So this has been bothering me for a long time, going to places and seeing all these young people not in school and, you know, feeling pretty lost. And so I raced, uh, got some interest with some emergency education experts, and got, we got funding from NORCAP, which is part of the Norwegian Refugee Council, and we were able to write this study, Lost Opportunity, about this huge crisis that's often overlooked. And what are some of the recommendations you make in the study? Well, um, one of them is that uh, there's no definition for who a youth is. It's no agreed definition, which is a problem. If you can't define the population, it's hard to address it. Um, there's also uh, an issue that there isn't targeting that's strategic for different parts of the youth population. So if you don't do that, then most youth don't have a chance of getting in. And I think for a lot of young people, um, they move around, they, they work, their parents, all sorts of things are going on in mm -hmm. these crisis environments. So there has to be some flexibility also in order to... Uh, for them to make it possible for them to continue their education. Now, beyond the physical disruptions of them going to school, what are some of the psychological impact they have uh, for their failure to attend school? Well, I mean, what's your future without education? Uh, what are you going to do without education? Who's going to guide you? Where are your mentors? Um, I think kids get quite lost uh, and um, they have a challenge moving forward without that sort of sense of hope, education really gives you not only protection, but a sense of a future trajectory, that you're moving forward with your life. Um, and when that's taken away, uh, then you're sort of on your own. So one of the things that happens is that a lot of young people leave refugee camps or uh, places for internally displaced and go to cities. And emergency education doesn't follow them there. They're mm -hmm. usually you know, they stay mostly primary education. They stay in refugee camps or in rural areas, and the kids are on their own. And when they move to these cities, they don't necessarily continue education. It's not available most of the time mm. for most kids. So they fall in the cracks because, well, there are no safety nets by the governments, by NGOs. Why is it that they're 
no available resources to cater to this population? That's a really good question. I, I mean, I think uh, one of the things is, is that the education and emergencies field uh, is very focused on primary education, which is the starting point for education. Um, the problem is, is that it doesn't build out much. When we did our research, we had to interview a lot of people, and there just isn't much youth expertise in the field, uh, according to education experts in the field. And uh, so there's not an understanding of who these people are and what, in educational terms, they actually need. Mm. So the, and, and no matter how long a crisis goes on, uh, such as in Yemen, such as in South Sudan, um, the or education in Sudan right now, or in Sudan right, right now, the emergency education system generally doesn't build out, and so it doesn't become a system beyond primary education. With a little bit, with some, um, uh, you know, s some differences, but in generally speaking, there it there just won't be a secondary school vocational education. It's just not there, and that's the challenge. And what impact does this have on, on society that you have millions or thousands of young people that are not, you know, school-going age that are just sitting idle? Well, I mean, there are efforts for girls' education to try to get girls to stay in school, but the focus of girls' education is largely on pre-adolescent girls. Um, and trying to persuade them, one of the things, is to not get married, to not get pregnant. But in many situations, the chances of a young person, a young female youth, uh, of getting pregnant and becoming a parent is actually pretty high. Mm -hmm. and, there's, and so what about that huge population? They can't go to school. Mm -hmm. There isn't that. Girls' education doesn't really, generally speaking, doesn't include them. Doesn't and then, them in, and yeah. then with the issues of boys' education. So boys are leaving school across the globe. It's mm -hmm. a global crisis. And that issue is not even on the radar in this field. Right. So, there's, so if you break it down in, gen, in terms of gender, it's quite concerning. But again, what does it have, the impact it has on society? I mean, some of these yeah. young people become drivers of some of the conflicts so that we, we see. Well, I, that's what, is, what does it mean for the society itself? Well, we have stereotypes about male use as being dangerous. Mm. And the, the facts just, you know, the actual realities don't back it up. Most youth are peaceful no matter what. Um, most youths re resist engagement in uh, joining gangs, joining violent extremist groups, joining insurgent groups. But of course some do. The overwhelming majority won't. Mm. But some do, and that becomes a focus. So I think more than joining some of these, these um, uh, violent groups... Uh, I think they're more just lost. And, I mean, there's a lot of drinking that goes on. There's drug use. Um, there's, you know, trying to find a way forward in the informal sector. Um, it's a hard life, and you're not really looked on with, with much respect. For female youth, they're, they're unmarried mothers quite often. What do you do? That, that's not a person that has much of a standing in society. Mm -hmm. So generally they... Um, stay sort of sidelined or they're really not in view. Um, so these are kind of invisible people. Mm. With unreali unrealized potential. Now you've and children. Absolutely. You've interacted with some of them you know, in your work yes, I as have. a writer. Um, what are some of their stories? What are some of the things they tell you? Well, I mean, one of the things is, is that life goes on. Life moves on and education doesn't move with them. So you have a big problem where you know, there are certain priorities in life. In order for education to be part of that, education has to be flexible. Education has to meet 
the the demands that they have, right? You, for an unmarried mother, a child wife, she's going to need daycare. Um, if you're working as a boy or a girl, uh, if you're if you're working, then you have to have flexible hours to allow that person to go to school. Um, and then there might be certain issues that certain subjects that they really need more than others. Mm -hmm. So that flexibility and that sort of understanding your population, who you're talking to, who you want to encourage to join in school, um, you have to understand their priorities in order to get them back into education. What, what, who do you hope reads this report and what do you want them to do? <laughs> <laughs> That's a wonderful question. I want everybody to read it. Um, and because I think that uh, uh, this is a priority that just where there's no money, so I want donors to read it, uh, uh, governments to read it, so that they can start realizing you have these young citizens. Let's figure out creatively how to get them back into education because that's be best for them, it's best for the society, mm -hmm. it's best for nations, regions, it's best for the world. So how do we work together? How do we learn from young people what are their education priorities and how do we get them included more in the education system? We've got to bring them back in and we have to listen to them to, and, and find out what they want in education uh, in order for them to come back and join us you know, in the broader society. Now, in times of crisis or conflicts, uh, you know, whether it's governments or NGOs, in terms of response, they're thinking you know, humanitarian aid, feeding people, uh, finding shelter for That's them. Right. Education is really not top of the agenda. How d would they incorporate education as part of their response mechanism? Well, let's think about this. What if you don't? Um, what, uh, you know, uh, if you don't have education for young people, the chances of there being more problems in terms of health, in terms of stability and security, they're going to skyrocket. And, you and also you don't have a connection with... Uh, young populations. And it's good to remember that in places where these emergencies are taking place, these are some of the youngest populations in human history. So we're not paying attention to, we're not listening to, we're not reaching out to and learning from members of the overwhelming majority of young people, of populations that are affected by crisis. And that dynamic has to change in order for us to really improve society and, and be, have an opportunity to connect with these young people who really are reaching out and saying, you know, accept me. Mm. Um, I want to do, I want an opportunity. Please give me one. Right. It's a, it's a situation definitely that is not sustainable. Mark Summers, thank you so much. As always, very insightful reports that you write. We thank you very much, and we hope you come and visit us again. Thank you very much, Jackson. It's great to be here. Thank you. Valentine's Day, celebrated on February the 14th of each year, is a day dedicated to love, romance, and relationships. It's a time-honored tradition that transcends cultural boundaries and is celebrated in various ways around the world. Now, we asked you to tell us about some of the ways you celebrate Valentine's Day. This is what you say. My name is Tina Wilson-Sam. Um, Valentine's Day means a lot to me. Though, for me, every day, you have to show love every day for... Um, people you come across or people you meet. But um, I, I was thinking when I was younger, I used to, this enthusiasm was there. You know where I'll, I'll be expecting gifts from people and all that. But when I grew up, I realized, okay, Val's Day is just a normal day like any other day. But in well, that day I don't do anything. But one significant thing I do is I send someone a gift, a chocolate. 
and chocolate. That's what I do on Val's Day. I'm Meredith. Okay, for me, I think Val's Day means spreading love to all, and not only to your boyfriend or girlfriend, but to your family members as well. And then also on Val's Day, we share gifts like chocolate, teddy bears, and things. That's what I think about Val's Day. My name is Jim Grimisa. Um, I think the concept of Val's Day is nice. Personally, I don't think one day is enough for you to really express your love, but for the sake of I think it makes sense. At least there's a day where people go out of their way to really show whoever they care about that they matter. Personally, I don't celebrate Val's Day. Maybe I haven't been lucky. I buy chocolate for my daughters on Val's Day. And I think you can choose to meditate. I mean, have a conscious thinking about how you can express love to anyone in the society or empathize with anyone in the society. So I think you can just choose love's day, uh, Valentine's Day as at least one day in the year where you can choose to show love to someone. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. Due to popular demand, I have Mugbill, Yabaro, yes, Mike Hovey right here in Studio 56. We have a couple of things to talk about. So in no particular order of mm -hmm. sequence, uh, mm -hmm. we're going to talk about music, sports, uh, some of the trending topics. Mm -hmm. And let's start with AFCON. I think our last conversation was on, on AFCON. Uh, but I wanted to hone in on one particular issue, mm -hmm. the technology. And they're officiating at this AFCON. Mm -hmm. They say it was top-notch, mm -hmm. that other leagues are kind of learning mm -hmm. from, you know, AFCON on how to do things. Yeah. Talk to me. How did you see it? Yeah, I, I personally think that this was one of the best officiated tournaments uh, I've seen, personally. Um, just being there, watching the games and seeing it happen in real time, and you think to yourself, well, that was kind of a tough call. And then you rewatch it, VAR used the correct way. Um, I, I literally don't know anybody who watched any of the games that said that there was any bad calls. Some of the calls were tough. If you mm. were emotionally attached to a team, you may have felt a certain way in that specific moment. But when you watch it back simply from a, you know, if, if you're looking at it from an unbiased side, great officiating. I think some of the bigger leagues in the, you know, in Europe and such can literally learn from what the refs on the continent did for this tournament mm. and their usage of VAR. Phenomenal usage. I yeah, think. I mean, AFCON has been around since 1957. It's, yeah. it's older than many of these leagues in Europe mm -hmm, that we mm -hmm. see. Uh, the technology part has just really is recent in many ways, but they're doing it well. Listen, Mike. man, when it comes to VAR, all I can say is this, right? I applaud it. Um, Men lie, numbers lie. Men lie, women lie, but VAR does not lie, right? <laughs> um, so, so the interesting part about this, and I, and I remember saying this on the pod, is especially that uh, there's a game where uh, the Bafana Bafana versus Morocco game. I was really blown away by how Morocco was so in line with the game. Their technical team had a laptop on the <laughs> sidelines, bro. Mm -hmm. Everything by the moment, yeah. every call, like Mokbul said, I'm yet to see. They not a single person. Like you could afford it, yeah. but like I said, VAR does not lie, yeah. right? Yeah. When you at every moment, um, I remember the Liverpool incident where they they ignored VAR, right? This did not happen at Afcon. Mm. One thing they definitely made sure was a the officiating was on par, up to standard. But that aside, when they knew any questionable thing, they consulted VAR and they did it perfectly. 
I, I haven't heard of a team that, outside of Senegal, that mm -hmm. complained about, oh, we were cheated. Mm. No one else mm. can say they were cheated at, at, at AFCON. Uh, moving away from uh, VAR real quick, Mark Bale, in the past uh, continental tournaments, we've mm -hmm. seen that uh, the hesitation among international African players coming back home to play, mm -hmm. this time didn't seem like it was uh, an issue. Mm -hmm. Why do you think so? I think the, what we're seeing is we're seeing a plethora of African stars dominating across the biggest clubs in the world. So when that happens, you can't get mad when a European player or a South American player wants to go back home for a tournament. Um, you know, maybe it's not the World Cup, but mm. it's, you know, a continental tournament whether it's the Euros or Copa, you don't get mad at that. So why get mad at uh, an African player who wants to go back and play for AFCON? So I think now teams understand that, hey, we may... And because AFCON also aligns with the Asian Cup as well, if you have players from Africa and Asia during a certain time, once every two years, you may be missing some key players, but what they do for you when they are around means more to, means more right. to elevate your Elevations, team yeah. so i don't think player or clubs anymore decide that they want to stay away from them you still see a couple of big name clubs like man city wasn't really affected no. a lot by it at man all, city actually. has an a team b team b team <laughs> c team f team bro. who right. usually makes these, these decisions is this the player themselves or the club um I, it's it's both um the player gets an opportunity to say hey yes i want to go represent my nation mm. but at the same time the club has to be willing to release you. Remember, right. the, the club is paying your salary, right? right. Um, so it's usually both. But at the same time, also, the federation has a say in it. Right. The federation has to say, hey, we want Jackson Bunganyi to come represent our mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. The player says, yes, I want to go to the country. Yeah. Then the team says, okay, you know what? At this point, we can release you for X amount of periods. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, remember, and this goes down to, for example, what happened with Mo Salah when he got injured. The club has a vested interest in that player. And so if something happens, the club They want him in. to be healthy. They want to make sure yeah. that you're good, right? <laughs> yeah. The yeah. minute AFCON ends, they want to make sure that you're in top to shape. Uh, so it, it, it's a bargaining uh, between all invested uh, yeah, people in their party. Guys, let's switch it up real quick, get into pop culture. Mm -hmm. Music. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest uh, musical events of the year we look forward to is the Grammys. Mm -hmm. This year they had a new category. Mm -hmm. uh, really kind of, you see, the, the respect being accorded to African music and African musicians, putting them on the same pedestal as other you know, musicians from mm -hmm. around the world, mm -hmm. including here in the U.S. Uh, the big category that we're watching had uh, Bonaboy, had Tyler, mm -hmm. had Davido, and uh, Tyler came up. Ashake, Tyler came up on top. Mm -hmm. It was uh, best uh, music, African, perf music, African music performance, performance mm -hmm. which sometimes we keep confusing it as uh, best Afrobeat Afro or African music. But uh, Tyler came up on top. Well, mm -hmm. What is your opinion on that? I feel like you might have a very different <laughs> opinion from that. <laughs> <laughs> given, the, given your South African roots. Listen, listen, listen. <laughs> um, listen uh, that was a very interesting pick. Uh, I'll, I'll openly say that. Um, uh, I think uh, all parties that were in, invested in that situation, uh, anyone could have won it. Um, with Tyler winning it, uh, I think uh, it also comes back to a discussion of what does it mean to have a Grammy, right? Uh, how important is the Grammy? And 
another thing is a lot of people got emotional. We don't even know how they got nominated mm. to become part of that, right? There's so many other artists that could have been in that category, but they didn't make okay, it. Okay, so let's talk about the category, the people mm -hmm. that were in there. Right. Bonner Boys, mm -hmm. right? Great album, right? City, uh, City Boys, City, City Boys, sorry. City Boys shouldn't have been in that category. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Like, there's so many other songs. Let's go down again. Yeah. Further down, David Doe. Yeah. Unavailable. Unavailable. I'm not against I'm that. Unavailable. <laughs> you tell me how water beats unavailable. Once again, once again. Listen. Spicy. Spicy. The thing is, people don't realize, we don't vote for it. Right. There's a board that's there that votes for it. A board with their own biases. With their own biases, with their own understanding of what African music is. Granted, I do applaud the fact that they're starting to incorporate more Africans in this decision making. But even then, it's not the everyday layman person that's saying that. And once again, to go back to Tyler, not to knock Tyler. Tyler's music was not as popular in South Africa as it was here in America, right? Mm. right? For example, it charted on the billboards, and everybody's happy. No South African will knock or say bad things about Tyler. Right. But what I will say to you is, when you're cutting in, when you're in the club or you're in the driving in South Africa, mm. and you cut the radio station. You're probably hearing Iplan Omnige yeah. first before you hear These water. These are local artists. Yeah. These are local. Shouldn't you artists. have like a buy-in from your local constituency? Of course you, to you should. I, absolutely, but I, but I feel like because she is a the new pop face, I think, mm -hmm. of African music. Mm -hmm. You know, she was with Epic originally. I mm -hmm. believe Sony just recently bought out her contract. Sony is invested in making sure that the continent is seen in a specific light, you know? She has the look that you would naturally think would come from a pop star, you know? So everything kind of works out in her favor, mm -hmm. and, it, and it's digestible for the casual fan yeah. uh, to be able to take in her music and then say, well, a that's casual that, American the, fan. The casual Afri international global, global yeah. fan. Let's make to, that to, very clear. To say, yeah, she's a global star. Mm -hmm. I don't think she's a local star. She's very global in that, you know, you look at her and you hear her music and you say to yourself, okay, this is what a global artist should look and sound like, regardless of if she's from South Africa or if she was from New York City, yeah. for real. Mm. You know, so because of that, I think that's what they're trying to push. So, so they're pushing that because mostly because of market. Marketing. You know, marketing I mean, purposes, when it comes down sure. to it, that's why I said we, all, we need to go back and have an entire discussion about the Grammys, not just the African category. Absolutely. Right. There's so many other conversations behind that right. that just so happens to loop that. But when it comes down to it, it's about who can be easily marketed the best, mm -hmm. right? And that's not to say that Davido, Burner Boy, Ashake, or any of the other people that were in that category cannot be marketed. Mm. But Tyler, in that moment, just so happened to be A, on top of the world. Everybody was singing, make me wanna, make me wanna. Like, and it's easy to sell that. Like, so like, does African music need Grammy validation no, to be relevant? Absolutely no, not. No. Absolutely yeah. not. That, that, for me, we should have our own Grammys, right? We should have our own, because here's the thing, and, and I said this when, when, they, when everybody was celebrating the fact that we now have a category. I asked, I said, what exactly does this category mean? Because mm -hmm. when it comes down to it, it just means you're getting validation within the U.S. market. Mm. That's it. Right. Now, granted, I, I remember growing up, every star, no matter where, how big you make it, you can make it big in, at home, make it big in Africa, make it big in the U.K. If it's, you don't cross, if you don't cross yeah. it into America, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're like, are you really a star? <laughs> I get that. Yeah. But at the same time, I think... One thing I do applaud of a Davido, a Burner Boy, the way that they've navigated their careers, 
are not seeking validation from a U.S. market. Mm -hmm. It just so happens that the U.S. market has gravitated towards them, but it's not pandering. But, 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 but in that same light, that's probably another reason why they maybe went towards a Tyler. Of course. Because mm -hmm. it's like, okay, Burners yeah, did... But Tyler wasn't pandering. No, no, of, co of course. No, she wasn't. No, no, I'm saying. But when you look at the Burners and the Devitos, right, they kind of forcefully pushed yes. their music down your throat in essence and you kind of had to just take it in whether or not right. the US or the global society was ready for afro at that time you're going to hear yeah. this right so because of that what ended up happening is you know uh they got into their own spaces and it's kind of like I don't need the validation but if I get it thank you right I'll let's take not it. forget that the reason why afrobeat you know became this huge global force is because of the diaspora market of course okay more than anything. africans like ourselves in the diaspora more than consuming, anything mm -hmm. you know with our dollars you know amplifying mm -hmm. the music elevating it taking pride in it right really do we need any other demographic to, to for that I mean, I mean do we need them no. no do we want them yes right it's yeah. important that we have uh, I, I remember my sister recently went on vacation somewhere in Europe or wherever in Greece or something. Mm. And she was like, yo, I can't go anywhere. I'm hearing Ruga. <laughs> that, for me, was like, wait, Ruga? They don't even speak English there. What are you talking about? For me, that was impressive yeah. because it shows how the culture itself is gravitating. Yeah. I, when hip-hop was coming up, one of the most beautiful things as I started growing up and becoming an adult was seeing young Asian kids who can't speak English mm -hmm. singing, I'll take you to the candy. For right. me, I was like, wait a minute. That, for me, is beautiful. And to now see young Asian kids, young black kids, young Latin kids singing, I need a boy, and sh that, for me, is like, Fire. oh, it's really beautiful yeah. to see how they're gravitating. I need a boy, and shy, yo, shy. <laughs> <laughs> so a video of, um, you know, young people in Indonesia in a club singing Terminator. <laughs> and they're know, doing the whole, yes, and the whole dance and everything. I'm like, what? Doing it better than I you remember doing, King bro. Promise like right. two years ago. No, yeah, nobody knew right. him. Right. And now this man right. is already made inroads in one of right. the. It's actually the biggest right. market right, right. now. Right. Yeah. And right. if Afro Beats is able to make, like, it crosses. Uh, forget America. If it crosses into the Asian market, that's it's, it. a wrap. it's a wrap. It's a wrap. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. I don't think it's a. It's a need, but it's important. So for me, I've always said, let's not try muscle and try to walk alone. Collaborate. Just, yeah, collaborate. Absolutely. Yeah. Collabos. And we've seen collabos. Nobody has more collabos than Banner Boy. They this work. man has been hustling and working, hitting. And it works. You know, right. And, okay, so, guys, we can talk Grammys all day. Mm -hmm. Let's switch it up back again into sports. Let's the go. NFL. Uh, the day we watched uh, the AFCON finals. Same the day. Same day. Super Bowl. Super Bowl. Yep. Finals were happening here. Big, big, big moment in uh, uh, in sports history. Um, but we've been hearing that the NFL, just like the basketball, like the NBA, is trying to expand mm -hmm. into Africa. Do we have? Does the continent have what it takes to host an NFL league? Uh, I do we have the mic? I mean, look at Mike. Mike has the body of an Mike, NFL player, Mike, right? Mike's ready to go. Mike, <laughs> sign Mike up for a 10-day. Uh, he's ready Let's to go. go. Let's go. Uh, I'm, his, I'm, I'm, I'm his agent. Uh, I'll be taking 10%. No. Um, <laughs> are, are we ready to host a Super Bowl? I, don't, I would say no. Not the Super Bowl. Oh, the, the league. Just, just have a league. league. Just yeah. host the league right. itself. Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, so here's the thing. I, I, I've seen... Um, more African faces in the NFL. Mm -hmm. 
um, which is showing that African players are more than 125 capable. players of African descent play in the NFL right. currently. Right. Yeah. So, so how many of those uh, players are from East, East Africa? Africa? I was gonna. <laughs> I don't know about that, bro. Slow down. <laughs> Slow down. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the West, yeah. West Africa is heavy. West yeah. and yeah. South can do that. For sure. I mean, we, we know our place, West bro. is more an, an NBA time. We play basketball. We do long-distance running. Right, 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 right. We have yeah. our thing. Yeah, the football yeah. is yeah. We're good. We're good. Sure. Um, yeah, but again, so... For you to have uh, an NFL team, the mm -hmm. kind of infrastructure you need, the, right? Okay. Yeah. Also, you know, we, we the we're money, talking about the, the money. Yeah. The, so the, that's why I'm saying athletic ability. Yeah. The athletic ability yeah, we have, right, yeah. right? We, I, I always say to people, and people think I'm crazy when I say this: if you can play rugby, yeah. Granted, they're two different sports. You could play football, but you, if you dedicate your time and energy, you can adapt to playing football. For sure. Right. Um, take that aside. So the athletic side is very possible. Now, the financial side and the resource side is a yeah. whole different conversation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, we're still trying to build the leagues that we're dedicated to. Right. I don't know if we have the finances to add another league. But if NFL the NFL there. was yeah. to inject some cash, some yeah. resources... Now, yeah. that's a whole different ballgame. Do we yeah. have the caliber again I th of yes. people I, I think that th would fill these teams? I think it's possible, but the, the problem is how dominant the game of football, world right. football, right. soccer, right, <laughs> is on the continent and how countries now have dedicated and are continuing to dedicate so much money to infrastructure mm -hmm. there and then how dominant a sport like a basketball is now with the NBA kind of getting an early start in mm -hmm. comparison to the NFL. We see certain games happening now uh, in the NFL that go to Europe, yeah, they Europe, play in like yeah. London and stuff and they're just starting to get excitement there. So if they've yet to develop infrastructure in Europe, yeah, it's bringing be a it while. to Africa will be tough. Yeah. I think maybe having respective scouts yes. and maybe you know looking at, like you said, Watching rugby players and maybe seeing, hey, this kid right here has potential. Could potential could, he could play a DB line mm -hmm. or he could play a wide receiver. Maybe, you know, finding those type of players and kind of, in essence, really poaching them and then bringing them over <laughs> to the West could be possible. Right. But I, yeah. I think infrastructure wise, it's a long shot. And with that, we come to the end of our show today. Many thanks to all of you for tuning in. Remember to connect with us on our social media platforms. We are at viewwayafrica.com on all platforms platforms on Instagram, on Facebook, and on YouTube, where you can watch our videos. Remember to like, to share, and to subscribe. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani. Let's connect again. Goodbye, everyone.